You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Uh, We are continuing with our sermon series on what the Bible says about certain cultural uh, issues. Um, And the reason that we feel that this is important is because of the fact that um, as what you see is that as the world's view of certain issues change, the church goes right along with that. Uh, and so what we want to do in this sermon series is kind of reorient ourselves and say, well, wait, 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 what does the Bible say about these issues? And so we know that some issues are more controversial than others. Um, I know that uh, the issue uh, that we're going to be talking about today, sexuality, is a very controversial issue, especially uh, homosexuality. And so, but that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today. This is such an important subject because our culture is literally saturated with sex. You can not, you can barely turn on a TV show or a movie or Netflix, whatever it is, without uh, having tons of sexual innuendos or explicit sexual scenes uh, that are on your TV screen. Going to a movie, uh, uh, very, uh, you can have very graphic scenes. Sex uh, really does saturate the entertainment industry. It's even in the, um, the advertisement industry as they use sex to sell uh, things. Um, and it is in almost every other industry as well. Sexuality is a topic that is even taught in our schools. Uh, homosexuality is taught, from what I understand, to kids even as young as uh, first grade or kindergarten. Uh, sexuality is everywhere, uh, and it's necessary, it's absolutely essential that we understand what the Bible says about it. And so we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to start with, and so I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible, the second chapter, and as you are turning there, I am going to pray, okay? Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you that you love us, that you care for us. We thank you for all the good things that you have given us. We pray in the name of Jesus that we would use those to your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to read through Genesis chapter 1, what I believe that you would see is you would see God's power put on display. In Genesis chapter 1, you see God speaking words, speaking words and worlds coming into existence. Uh, Trees and mountains and waterfalls and trillions of stars simply by God speaking words. That is power. If you were to read through all of Genesis 2, I believe that you would see God's goodness put on display. Here's what I mean by that. God created us humans with our five senses, our sight, our hearing, our taste, our smell, our touch. And then he put us in a world where all of those senses are stimulated in the most amazing of ways. With our eyes, we see a myriad of colors and shapes. We see the grandeur of of the Colorado mountains or the simplicity uh, of the Kansas plains, right? We see, the, uh, we see the, the mighty power of Niagara Falls, the vastness of the ocean or a desert. 
And we also see millions of other things that were created by God or built by man who was created in God's image. With our ears, we hear beautiful music. We hear the chirping of the birds. We hear the crashing of the ocean waves or maybe the crackling of a bonfire. Or we hear the voice of a loved one telling us that they love us, that they care for us. With our noses, we may smell our favorite fragrances or uh, the smell of freshly cut grass uh, or the smell of a campfire or a thousand other smells that we enjoy. With our tongues, we get to taste our favorite foods, uh, whether that be tacos or seafood or chicken or beef or Mexican, Italian, Chinese, whatever it may be. We get to taste those things. I remember when I lived in St. Louis, almost every Sunday, uh, I would go out with my sister's family and we would go to a Chinese restaurant and you'd just walk in, right? And your mouth would start to salivate. And my brother-in-law, he would get up and he would pray and he would say, this is all he would say, Lord, thank you for taste buds, amen nothing else needed to be said right you didn't need to go into a long prayer it was like we're about to enjoy this and this is the goodness of god for us in addition to all that god has placed millions of nerves in our body and nerves really do serve a wonderful function right they can warn us of danger in the form of pain i know that we don't like pain but it's a good thing when you start to feel those aches and pains and say hey there might be something wrong right nerves do that and nerves also bring us pleasure. Nerves being stimulated by a back rub or a back scratch. Uh, nerves being stimulated by a warm embrace or a tender kiss. And yes, thousands of nerves that are stimulated in the wonderful act of sex. Not to be overly graphic, but God put all the right nerves in all the right places. And you ask, why would he do that? And the answer is, because God is a good God. He's a good God. Our five senses are wonderful things. They're also very powerful things that can be used in destructive ways. With all powerful things, there has to be instructions for their proper use and limitations as well. Therefore, in the Bible, God puts limitations on our five senses especially in a fallen world. For example, our eyes were okay looking at beautiful things, but we are to make sure that we do not lust. We're to make sure that we don't look at other things and covet those things. Our ears are not to entertain gossip. Our mouths are not to overeat. These limitations that God puts on our five senses are not meant to steal our joy. They're meant to maximize our joy. Because if you're involved in lust, sexual lust, or if you're involved in covetousness, what you are saying is that I am not content in the circumstances that God has me in. I'm not content with the person that God has me with. I long for this. I want this. You are longing for something that God has not in his infinite wisdom given you or provided for you. And you are saying, in a sense, God, you're holding back on me, just like Adam and Eve did in the beginning. Listening to gossip erects walls between you and other people. 
it is destructive. Overeating reveals selfishness or self-indulgence. It can also steal your energy or your ability to function to your maximum capacity. For these and other reasons, God puts limitations on our five senses. Regarding the sense of touch and sex, God puts several limitations on it. Those are the limitations that we're going to talk about today. We've said it several times in the sermon series uh, that uh, in regard to gender, in regard to marriage, divorce, God is the one who created us. God holds the patent on us, which means that God is the one and God alone dictates the proper use of our body and improper use of our body. It's as plain and simple as that. Therefore, we cannot go with the oft-repeated mantra, if it feels good, then do it, right? Or love is love, you can't help who you love. God is the one who defines what love is. God is the one who defines what right and wrong are. We, I hope you realize this, okay? We cannot trust sinful fallen man to determine what right and wrong is. We are jacked up. We are messed up. We come into this world not thinking clearly about things. For example, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You can't trust your heart. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, right? But it feels so good. It feels so right. This is the right thing. And the Bible's saying, oh, don't go there. It's the way of death. And of course, Isaiah 5, 20 says this, woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is what our culture has done. Bible says this is wrong and say, oh, no, 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 it's not. It's a good thing. The Bible says this is a good thing. Oh, no, 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 this is a bad thing. This is why we must be suspicious when the world tells us that something is okay or something is not okay. So we're going to focus on, in on sexuality today, and here's what I want to say about sexuality in a general statement. The act of sex is a wonderful gift from God, only to be engaged in between one man and one woman in the covenant bond of marriage. Okay, let me say that again. The act of sex is a wonderful, glorious gift from God, only to be engaged in between one man and one woman in the covenant bond of marriage. I also want to say this. The Bible celebrates sex, okay? It really does. The Bible celebrates sex. There's no question about this. Let me give you a couple examples. And I want you to know that as I'm reading these examples, these are all within the context of the covenant bond of marriage. There are no exceptions. Starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What you have is you have two people who are leaving two people and coming together in a union of marriage. They're becoming one. And that oneness 
primarily is talking about a sexual union, okay? We know this because Paul talking about this union in a negative way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, referring back to the principle that God established in Genesis 2, 24, says this, or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And he's saying, don't you realize this is not a casual act. There's a union that's taking place with this person. So sex should not be engaged in outside of the bonds of marriage. But once again, in the context of marriage, sex is a beautiful and God-honoring act. Listen to Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. It says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. People, this is a command from God in his holy scriptures, right? It's like, woo, don't read anymore, right? But this is God's word, okay? God is encouraging enjoyable frequent sex. That's what he's doing in his words. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to sexual love, the book of Song of Solomon. And I just want to read a couple verses. I don't want to take this from a PG up to an R-rated um, sermon, but I read these to demonstrate once again that uh, what God thinks about this act of sex that he created and gifted to us as human beings. This is not like God's like, oh, don't do it. Oh, you just do it. You got to procreate. So I guess you have to do it. No, God celebrates this. Here's what he says. There's, there's this interchange between a husband and a wife. And here's, here's just one section. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of a vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This is a celebration. This is a good thing. This is God not saying, I just said that, don't do it, right? No, he's encouraging this. And the Old Testament is not the only place where sexual love is celebrated. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Um, I know that there was a time in, in church history where people were like very prudish about sex uh, and stuff like that. Um, but I, and you know, it's only for procreation. I know even like a, a early Jewish historian, I think Philo, uh, said that it's only for procreation. Uh, but I hope that I've demonstrated from the Old Testament that that's not how God views it. And Paul does not view it in the New Testament in that way either. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You're like, whoa, wait, you just, isn't that contradicting? Hold on. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Listen to this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that's sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This passage is all about the goodness and importance 
of sex within the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. I'll say it again, the Bible celebrates sex. But because sex is a powerful thing, the Bible also puts very strong limitations on its use. Think about it. A couple weeks ago, we just celebrated the 4th of July. Um, I know that when we lived in St. Louis, one of the things that we love to do is we love to go and get a bunch of fireworks. But if you read the fireworks, right, what you would see is this is how you properly use them, and then you would see big warnings, which would limit the use, okay? Because fireworks are a powerful thing, and if they're not used properly, they can be very dangerous. They can cause very great harm to the body, up to and including death. Or think about this. Before you are allowed to legally get behind a two to 4,000 pound car, right? You have to take training and you have to have experience. You have to follow, are you ready for this? Hundreds of traffic laws and speed limits. On any given road, you are limited to how fast you can go on that road. Now, why are there speed limits? Well, it's obviously because the government wants to steal our fun, right? They don't want us to have a good time out on the road. No, the government's primary responsibility is to ensure your safety and the safety of those around you. Because the old saying, right, speed kills, all right? And so they're like, if you're going through this residential area, you can't go over 20 miles an hour because a kid might jump out and you might kill them, right? On this highway, you can only go this fast. There are limits because a car is a powerful thing. And if it's not used properly, it can be a very dangerous thing as well. The same is true regarding the commands in the Bible, all the commands in the Bible, but particularly uh, those regarding sex. So let's talk about the limitations that God's word puts on sex. Since sex begins in the mind, that's where we're going to begin today. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now Jesus is talking here about the physical act of adultery, sleeping, physically sleeping with someone who is not your wife, physically sleeping, sleeping with someone who is not your husband. But then Jesus takes it a step further and he says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I just want to quickly say that this also applies to women. Jesus is not saying if a man looks at a woman uh, and lusts at her, that's a sin, but women can do that. No, it's implied that it's wrong for a woman to do it as well. Jesus' point is this. Sex really begins in the mind. And here's the reality. You could actually abstain from physical, the, uh, the physical sexual act your whole life and still be sexually impure in your mind, okay? In this passage, the physical act of sex or even the mental act of sex with someone other than your spouse is strictly forbidden, Okay, it is strictly forbidden. So let me be as clear as I can right now so that we leave this place today with no ambiguity whatsoever, okay? Uh, here's what I wanna say. Sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend outside of the bonds of marriage is a sin, okay? 
even if you say we really, really love each other, we have every intention of getting married, it is still a sin prior to marriage. Sex with a person of the same sex is a sin because the Bible does not recognize it. We'll get more into that a little bit later uh, and then especially tonight. Sex, and I hate to even say this, you know, I, but our culture is such that you have to. Um, sex with more than one person at a time is a sin. Okay? Furthermore, okay, let's take it a little step further. Looking at and lusting after a man or a woman who is not your husband or your wife, whether they are physically in front of you or virtually in front of you or just in your mind is a sin okay it is a sin therefore pornography is a sin okay staring at that girl or that guy on the beach or in the store uh, or walking down the streets or even visualizing another person in a sexual way in your mind is a sin reading a sexually graphic novel with no pictures in it whatsoever is a sin, okay? You are actually in your mind going into a person's bedroom and witnessing what they are doing. It is a sin, okay? Now I'm going to get real personal. Watching a TV show or a Netflix show or a movie with sexual content that causes arousal is a sin. It is a sin. Now, I know that many struggle with this and may try to justify their actions by saying it's just a TV show or I'm not actually physically engaging in sex. But according to Jesus in Matthew, you are violating God's sexual ethic. Okay? Uh, and that needs to be identified as such and avoided no exceptions whatsoever. Since sex begins in the mind, that's where we need to start to combat it, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says that we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And if you were to read the verses before that, which I'm going to, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 through 5, it talks about the spiritual warfare that we're in. And listen to this. He says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. A couple words I want to highlight there. Anyone who has ever struggled with an addiction to pornography knows that it's a stronghold. It is a stronghold. And we are combating that, right, with the weapons of the warfare that we have been given, the spiritual weapons. We are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion. The culture that we live in, the world says, no, this is right. It's good. You can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It's a good thing. They make their arguments for that, right? We're destroying those arguments and those opinions, and we are taking every thought captive and saying, Christ, is this right or is this wrong? And we're submitting it to the leadership of Christ. Here's the bottom line. Satan has built a multi-billion dollar 
pornography industry, sex trafficking industry, prostitution industry, which has literally destroyed tens of thousands of lives and marriages. It's as simple as that, right? You think Satan cares about your marriage? He wants to do everything he can, either your current marriage or your future marriage, to destroy it. He has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And millions of people sit in front of a monitor staring at images that will be burned into their minds and will either affect their current marriage or their future marriage. You're looking at images that are going to be burned into your mind. God would rather you avoid these problems, which is why he has established these limits on sex, beginning with the mind. That the physical act of sex is to be between one man and one woman and the covenant bond of marriage is abundantly clear in scripture. In addition to the passages that I've already read from Genesis and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and 1 Corinthians, Hebrews 13, 4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The bottom line is that sex outside of the covenant bond of marriage, as God defines it between one man and one woman, whether physical or mental, is sin. It's sin. But once again, sex within the covenant bond of marriage is a beautiful, wonderful, God-honoring act. So if God instructs that sex only be exercised within the covenant bond of marriage, and God is the one who defines what marriage is, then I will simply say this, Homosexual sex is always, always a sin. It is always wrong. As many of you know, and as I've already said before, what we've been doing through this summer series, because we know that a lot of these topics are controversial, is that we're meeting up here at 6.30 at night, um, and we're discussing these further. Uh, And since we're limited with time today, uh, I'm not going to be able to go through the passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible. We're going to do that tonight. Um, I've made a list of the passages, and we're going to talk about how progressive Christians say, no, no, God is not condemning homosexuality here. No, that's not what it's talking about. And we're going to talk about the arguments that they form, uh, which in some cases are very sophisticated, strong, seemingly strong arguments. And we're going to say, are they consistent with the Bible? Is this how they should be interpreted? So um, once again, I just want to encourage you, if you can, to come back uh, tonight, uh, listen in, and provide your feedback. But here's what I want to say. I believe that the Bible from start to finish gives absolutely no room for same-sex marriages, unions, or whatever else you want to call them, regardless of whether they are monogamous or not. Okay? Let me give you two main reasons why I think that is, okay? Uh, The first is this. The reason that I don't believe that the Bible leaves any room for same-sex unions is that you cannot find a single place in the Bible where homosexuality is spoken of in positive terms. You cannot find a single passage in the Bible, okay? Now, I know some people will say, well, David and Jonathan, you know, we'll talk about that tonight. It's not It's just not true. It's not true, and we'll talk about why that's not true. But every place that it talks about um, homosexuality, men with men or women with women, it always speaks about it in negative terms. The second reason that I believe that the Bible leaves no place for same-sex unions is because marriage and sexuality 
were established in the very beginning by God at the created order. Okay? I just want to look at a couple passages here. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 5 and 6. Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. In response to a question about divorce intended to trap Jesus, Jesus had a response to that. Here's what Jesus said. He's going all the way back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, the first thing that I want you to notice is who is the one who is joining people together? And the answer is that it is God who is joining people together, all right? And who is he joining together? He is joining together a man and a woman. That is who he is joining together. The second thing, furthering that, what I want you to notice in this foundational statement is, uh, let's look at this. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father, which is a male, and his mother, which is a female, and that man, who is a male, shall hold fast to, uh, uh, to his wife, who is a female. So once again, Jesus is not leaving any room for a man and a man and a woman and a woman, okay? It simply is not there. Now this is significant because Jesus came to set things straight, right? And Jesus was seen by many as a rebel, right? I mean, he totally upset the current religious culture. He made so many of the religious leaders angry because Jesus violated so many social norms. Jesus, in the first century, this is a very scandalous thing, Jesus actually taught a woman. He taught women. A rabbi doesn't do that, but Jesus did right? Jesus, oh my goodness, he ate and hung around with tax collectors and sinners. Like, doesn't he know what kind of people these are? Like, he entertained, like, as guests, um, sexually promiscuous women. This is crazy. Doesn't he know? There, he was in the house of a Pharisee one day, and this woman comes, and she's, uh, she's washing his feet with her hair, and the Pharisee's thinking, oh, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not allow this. Jesus also clarified so many points of the law. And there's an interesting passage in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. I want you, if you can turn there, uh, I want you to turn there. Jesus is talking in this passage in Mark chapter 7 about food. And if you know anything about the food laws um, of the Jewish people, uh, you would know that they, are, they were very, very strict. I mean, very, very strict. Uh, if you were to, for example, if you got some time to read Leviticus chapter 11, it's not the most exciting reading, um, but he goes through, you can eat this, you can't eat this, you can eat this, you can't eat this. Um, and the things that they can't eat, he uses words, uh, the author uses words such as unclean or detestable. Detestable. If you eat this, it is detestable. Okay, so with that in mind, Jesus is here talking about food and he says this, hear me all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then listen to this statement. Thus, he declared all foods clean. That's crazy. With one statement, Jesus said, hey, you remember Leviticus chapter 11? I'm overturning that in a sense, okay? He declared all foods clean. Here's my point. Jesus took the opportunity here in Mark chapter seven to overturn these strict food laws in Matthew chapter 19, he also had the opportunity to overturn the marriage laws as well between one man and one woman. He could have said, you have heard it said this, but here's what I say to you. But Jesus did not do that. Certainly, certainly there were uh, people in the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire who were struggling with same-sex attractions. There, I'm sure that there were people who were even involved in committed monogamous same-sex relationships. Jesus knew the heart of all people. He could have seen that from a mile away. You remember the woman at the well, right? She hadn't told Jesus anything. And he said, yeah, I know your history. You've had five husbands and now the man that you're living with is not your husband. Jesus was not ignorant. When he saw these people coming, he could have affirmed them, but he never did. He did not affirm those relationships. If Jesus didn't, then certainly Paul, 25 years later, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, would have addressed it, right? And yet he doesn't either. I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Paul is writing in the context of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And here's what he says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. It seems pretty exclusive. And then if you were to read the 40 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you would see that he keeps using those same words, husband, wife, husband, wife. At no point does he ever speak about same-sex union. If Paul intended to set the record straight, this would have been the time to do it. This would have been the time to say, I'm not talking about you, okay? I'm not talking about a monogamous relationship. This would have been the time to do it. He could have clarified his position. We know that he clarified his position in other places. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, he said this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. I'm not talking about this. Let me clarify what I'm saying here, just in case you miss this. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this specifically. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. He clarifies his point. And here's my point. With such strong statements against homosexuality in his letters, in 1 Corinthians, in Romans, in 1 Timothy, he could have stopped and said, I am not at all talking about 
a same-sex monogamous relationship. I am not talking about that. I know that there are people who genuinely love each other and are committed to each other. I am not speaking against you, but Paul does not do it. He would have had to do it because he's coming out of Judaism, right? Which had, which everyone knew, this is what the law is. And he could have said, I know that that's what it was, but I had a direct revelation from Jesus. This is what it is now. Okay, but he never does it. Okay, that's all I want to say uh, about uh, homosexuality uh, regarding what the Bible's stance on it right now. Once again, I'm going to encourage you to come back tonight uh, where we'll talk a little bit more about it. Here's what I want to do as we close. I want to say this. Sexual sin is a very serious thing, okay? In addition to Paul speaking about it, Peter talks about it, Jude talks about it as well. It is also a sin that if you look at Paul's list of sins, it usually tops his list of sins. Every time he gives a list of the sins that we're not to commit, it always tops them except for in one case where he actually goes through the Ten Commandments in order. But every other time at the top of the list, sexual sin is there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, at the end of a discussion on sexual immorality, here's what Paul says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What he's saying is this. When you came to Christ, you yielded your body to Christ. You yielded your eyes. You yielded your hands. You yielded, if I can be graphic, your sexual organ. You don't own it anymore. It's God's and God dictates how you can use it. Your body is not your own. It's been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He owns it. He dictates how we are to use it. So this is a serious sin and I'm sure that many, if not most, outside the church and even within the church have succumbed to it at one time or another in the form of lust or in the actual act of, uh, of adultery. Over the seven years that I have been here, I know that I've talked to many, many people about this struggle, even couples I've talked to about this, who struggle with pornography or struggle um, with uh, uh, sexual relations with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If that's you today, then here's what I wanna be clear. Okay, if that's you today struggling with pornography, struggled with it in the past, engaged in premarital sex, what I want to say is this, you have sinned against God and you've sinned against your own body. But the question that remains is, so what does God think about me now, right? You've just told me that I'm stained with sin. Uh, In this particular case, the sin of sexual immorality. What does God think about me? To give that answer, I want to share a story that Matt Chandler, a pastor uh, in Texas of a large church, shared. It was his first year in college, and he and his buddies were uh, witnessing to one of their neighbors who was very sexually promiscuous. She was actually in an extramarital affair at the time, and they were just trying to share Jesus with her. And um, so there came this event, this worship service that was going to be at this church, and uh, one of Chandler's uh, buddies was playing in the band. And so they uh, invited this woman, you should come and hear him and stuff like that. And so she came and the music was great. And then the speaker got up there and he said, today I'm going to talk to you about sex. And Chandler's like, oh my goodness, you know, what in the world? And what he did is he held up a rose 
and it was beautiful, like a freshly cut rose. And he, he smelled it, and then he threw it into the crowd, and he said, I want you to pass it around, smell it, feel it, feel the texture of the petals and the stem and stuff like that. And while you're doing so, I'm going to teach. And then he went on to teach, and Chandler said, it was the worst uh, description of, of how the Bible views sex that he had ever heard. And he said it may have been because he was just angry, you know, to begin with. But he said it was more fear-mongering than anything, saying stuff like, you don't want syphilis, do you? Or everyone is smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, right? And so this is what he was saying. And then finally, uh, near the end, he's just like, Where's my rose? Where's my rose? I need my rose. Where's my rose? And then finally this college student brings it up and this thing looked horrible. The stem was broken. Most of the petals were missing and it just looked like it had withered in the period of a half hour. And this was his big crescendo. He held up the rose and he said, who in the world would want this? Who in the world would want this? And the implication is that no one would want this. This, this rose has been passed on from person to person. It's been used and abused. It's ugly. It's stained. It's nothing like it was before. No one would want that. And Matt Chandler said that he was sitting there, and he was just a freshman, and he didn't do this, but he said he burned with anger, and he wanted to just stand up and say, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. And he was right, and he is right. The Bible is clear that all y'all, including me, have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standards, okay? All of us. There is no one in here that is righteous. No, not one, okay? So if you came in here thinking that you were pretty good, sorry to burst your bubble, you're not. You're a sinner, okay? We're all broken and we're all ugly and stained because of sin, that is the condition of all of us, which is why God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That beautiful rose of Jesus, perfect, gave his life for us who were imperfect and broken so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that we who were broken might be made whole again. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice he doesn't say that God showed his love for us because we got our acts together. God came to me, he's like, oh, Jason's finally getting his act together. I'm going to come to him. No, it was while we were still sinners, dead in sin, stained by sin, gross in the sight of God, presenting our righteousness to him, which the prophet says is as filthy garments. Our best. Here's my best, God. And God's like, oof, wow. <laughs> Can you take that somewhere else, right? That's all of us. That was the condition of all of us. And then Jesus, in the most tender of ways, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, says this, and I love this, because he's looking over a crowd, and there were people who were hurting there were people who were burdened. The, the religious leaders were coming in and telling everyone every day how evil you are and how you don't abide by the law and how you, are, you, you, you deserve nothing but God's judgment. And here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There are people in that crowd which were like, oh, I need rest. I need rest for my soul right now. And then John, and Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37 said, and one more thing, whoever comes to me, I will certainly not turn away. Oh, but you don't know my past. You don't know how many guys or girls I've slept with. You don't know the thoughts that go through my head on a daily basis. There's no way. Nope. You come to me, I will certainly not turn you away. So here's what I want to say. If you're here today and you're stained with the sin of sexual immorality, if you find yourself stuck in Romans chapter 7 where you're like, the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. I, I, I'm doing those and the things I know I need to do, I, I'm not doing. If you're stuck there, then there is hope. There is hope. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants you to confess all of your garbage to him, all of your sin. He wants you to turn away from it and walk in a manner that pleases him. And it all begins by believing in him. It all begins by believing that he is who he says he is, namely the son of God, the son of man, that he did what he said he would do, namely came and lived the life that you and I were required to live, that sexually pure life, that honest life, that selfless life that we all mess up on. He came and he lived that life. And then he went to a cross and he was punished for every violation of the law that you and I ever committed, including our sexual sin. Believing that, when you believe that, then what happens is that he comes into your life and he forgives how many of your sins? All of your sins, past, present, and oh yes, the ones that you're going to commit this evening and tomorrow and the next week, and that he forgives all of your sins, past, present, and future. And here's the beautiful thing, is that you stand in the sight of God as perfectly righteous because of Jesus. Will you continue to sin in this life? Oh, yes, you will. I will too. But here's the thing. All of your sins are forgiven. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you are holy in his sight. And then he'll give you his Holy Spirit to empower you to say no to pornography, to say no to sexual relationships outside of marriage, to say no to same-sex temptations. And then this is where the church steps in. We're here to help you identify sin. I know that we preach very strongly on issues. Uh, we're not here to condemn you. We're here to say, hey, sin separates. Sin causes damage. We don't want that in your life. And so we will help you identify sin and we'll encourage you to turn away from it. We want to encourage you to come to us. Anyone, any one of the leaders in the church and other people in the church, you know, whether it be the men's ministry leader, women's ministry leader, youth leaders, whatever it is, the elders, come to us. We want this to be a safe place. We want you to know that whatever you share with us in confidence, we're not going to share with other people. We want to walk with you. We will definitely, we will definitely encourage you. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll take on uh, Paul's statement in Romans 8.1, which says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we'll also encourage you to turn away from your sin and to walk in holiness as we commit to walking with you through these struggles. 
Finally, this is all I want to say is I would just encourage you to come back <clears throat> tonight. Um, once again, I think this is a very important topic uh, in our culture uh, where the church, I think, is losing a lot of, of ground here. And we just want to say, why do we believe what we believe? Does the Bible really bear this out? So uh, let's pray. Father, um, I pray that I have handled this topic with truth, but also with grace and compassion and mercy. Lord, I would venture to guess that everyone in here uh, has struggled at one point or is currently struggling with sexual temptation and is giving in. I know that the enemy wants to come in and say, you are worthless. You will never overcome this. You're gross. Don't ever share it with anyone. I pray that you would shut him up I pray that his voice would be very clear to them, that it's the enemy, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would come through loud and clear and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that healing would happen in this church, that we would truly come along one another and care for one another in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would realize that you are pleased with us because of what Jesus has done. You're a good, good father, and we praise you for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.